Hello and welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. I am Justin Landon, your host, and we're going a little off the beaten path this week with a very special guest. His name is Keith Law. He's the senior baseball writer for ESPN.com and ESPN Scouts, Inc. He was formerly a writer for Baseball Prospectus and worked in the front office for the Toronto Blue Jays. He's a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America, and he makes regular appearances on ESPN's Baseball Tonight. Welcome, Keith. Thank you. Uh, for those who don't know anything about baseball, which is pretty much my uh, entire audience, uh, I want to let you all know that Keith is one of the uh, foremost experts on like up-and-coming professional baseball players uh, in sports journalism. And he's just completed his annual Top 100 Prospect list, which for comparison's sake is kind of like George R. R. Martin crashing to get his book done before the publisher has to move the date, <laughs> except the publisher won't move the date. Right. Uh, so how are you feeling with that finish, Keith? Relief? Relief. Absolutely. We actually did have to change some of the dates. I got horribly sick after a scouting trip to Puerto Rico. I caught some kind of respiratory infection and was just laid out for a week. And my boss was like, why are you trying to work through this? Like, you're clearly not well. And I was like, I have a deadline. I have to I have to finish the ranking. So we changed the schedule a little, but it actually all worked out great. And yeah, now it's just a huge relief. It's so much content. It ends up somewhere between twenty five and 30,000 words of content. It's not the same as writing 30,000 words of fiction, but still, it's just a lot. It takes a lot of time to get that many words on the page. And I can't imagine what my editors go through to get that all cleaned up, hopefully not too much, but then formatted, just ready to go so that users click and it's pretty and it has uh, it has pictures and it has logos and all that other stuff. All I have to do is put the words in. They do all the detailed work. So I've got a... Uh, I've got a crew of people up there who help make me look good. Yeah, and I have to imagine that, uh, like, for Corey Seager, who's your number one, the number one prospect, right? Like, you probably could write 4,000 words on him. I've seen him so many times, yeah. You get down to, like, number 100, and you're like, maybe, like, a paragraph or two is about all you've got. The struggle becomes the guys I haven't seen as much. So I try, just for your listeners' understanding, part of the job is that I talk to scouts, I talk to executives, to get as complete a picture as I can of as many prospects as I can, because there are more than just 100 future big leaguers playing in the minor leagues right now. And I'm trying to identify the 100 best, but of course, I'm not going to get the 100 best. I'm just going to do the best I can to identify the right guys. But I have experience in a baseball organization that involved me going out occasionally and seeing players to evaluate them. And now I've been going out and seeing players and evaluating them myself as if I were a scout, sort of a faux scout for ESPN for almost 10 years now. And so I incorporate my own evaluations as much as I can. For a player like Corey Seager, who was first, I saw him in a high school. I saw him at a couple showcases. Then I went to uh, Catawba, North Carolina to watch him play in high school. And then I've seen him a couple times in the minor leagues. And he got to the big leagues at the end of last year. I've got a ton of experience just seeing him. I don't have to ask a lot of questions about him. But the deeper you get into systems, there's always going to be guys I just haven't seen. It's particularly true for Latin American players where they didn't come through the draft. I do draft scouting, but I don't go to the Dominican typically to go watch the 15-year-olds play because it's impo- that's just like a logistical and ethical nightmare that I don't want to get involved in at all. But um, So I'm always playing a little bit of catch-up. I always find myself doing this list and saying to myself, I wish I'd seen more of these players. But you can't. I'm one person with a limited travel budget. There's only so many guys I can see. So I end up having to, just to your to your point, as I get deeper into the list, the words, I can get the words out, but they're less my own observations and they become more secondhand observations. So of course, my level of confidence in what I'm saying starts to drop. 
Yeah, this sounds a lot like in science fiction and fantasy world where we start to assemble awards ballots every year. And of course, I don't know how where you are, but the award alphabet soup in science fiction and fantasy, <laughs> I think, dwarfs any other. I mean, we have so There's many awards. There's a lot. Awards. Yes. Every time I try to write up one of these books that I've read, I, I always like to mention it won this award, it won that award, and eventually I had to draw the line. It's like, am I going to list all the awards that it won? It gets ridiculous. Right. And so uh, we, we always get into this thing where it's like, I've, I've, I've tried to read all the best stuff, mm-hmm. but I can't read everything. And so no. you, you just do the best you can. It's triage. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how people like the Pulitzer Committee, the, rec- the committee that actually recommends the books, how many hundreds of American novels come out in any year. And you have to recommend the, I don't know, the half dozen or so best. And the ultimate winner, it's a thankless task. Yeah, a good friend of mine just is, is on the Arthur C. Clarke Award jury this year. And and she is currently, it's sort of like one of those things that you get asked to do. I'm sort of, it's imagine sort of like uh, the when you got to cast your first Hall of Fame ballot, like how exciting that was. I'm still not there. I'm looking forward to it. Oh my yeah. God, you're right. Yeah, it'll you're... be a thrill. I have three more years, I think, but yes. I think it's exactly it. Sounds if somebody asked me, "Hey Keith, we want you to we want you to be on the Hugo Award." Well, the Hugo doesn't like that, but the Clark Award panel this year. Of course, I would say yes, absolutely, It'd be a huge honor. And then at some point, you probably sit down and say, "Wow, I just volunteered myself for a lot of work." A lot, a lot. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and you have to carry the torch. You know, you got to do it right. Right. Yes, absolutely. I because I'm now I'm one of those people who looks back at these past awards and said, "Why did that win?" That was a terrible choice. Easy for me to do that. I didn't have to sit there and read all the books that year. Right. Oh, we'll get to that. Uh, so despite this uh, having this conversation about baseball, we're not really here to talk too much about the game. Uh, we're more here to talk about one of your uh, other loves, which is which is books. So obviously you, you do read. We've talked about this. So like how much do you read? Uh, last year, I set a personal best. I had 104 books read in uh, just in the calendar year of 2015. So obviously, it's that's exactly two a week. Um, it's more – the more I travel, the more I read. I just am never caught anywhere without a book. I'll read – I prefer dead trees. I will will read stuff on um, – I have an iPad. I read on the Kindle app, typically on the iPad. Um, I read all kinds of things. I read mostly fiction. It's about 80% fiction. And I tend to go through lists. At one point, it was Time Magazine did its list of the 100 greatest English language novels in this sort of specific time period. I said, you know, I'm just going to read them all. And going through lists like that or going through – I'm reading through all the Hugo Award winners, which is part of how you and I connected here. I just like going through lists like that because there's going to be duds. There's always – any list like that, there's going to be books I just don't like. But then I discovered gems, like among others, Joe Walton's book from a couple of years ago. That's one of the most amazing novels, not science fiction novels or fantasy novels or whatever you want to call it. Just one of the most amazing novels, period. That I've ever read. I've given it. I just gave it to uh, a friend from the neighborhood who she revealed herself. She saw me with a sci-fi book in my hand at the bus stop. And turned out we had a shared interest, and she lo- she came up to me and like put her arm around me. It's I can't believe how good that book was. That book was amazing. The characters were so good. Like I love that. I love discovering a book like that, and then the joy of sharing it. Whether I'm sharing it with readers on my blog or just with people I meet, where. I can tell it, hey, you like this, read that. And they'll turn around and tell me, oh, you should read this. And of course, I'm always keeping a list because um, I go through so many books, I can never get enough recommendations. I'm always listening to people who see what I read and what I liked and say, oh, if you like that, you should definitely read this other book too. Because I want to keep it, I want to keep expanding my universe of authors, of styles, of whatever I can, because I just love the, the sort of joy of reading for its own sake. 
Joe Walton is a, is amazing. Also a, a tour author as well. Uh, oh. and she's got a host of other, of other stuff. So, uh, when you finish up your Hugo winners, you'll have to go and, and find some yeah. of Joe's other stuff. She's amazing. But so I, I have to ask, like, I do notice you've done the novel 100, Bloomsbury's list, Time 100. So why are you so obsessed with lists? Is, it, is there like something about them that's sort of like completionist for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I actually had a therapist tell me probably about 10 years ago now. She called it an, a striver personality type where I like the, I get huge personal satisfactions out of just completing things, out of checking things off. I mean, I have like a to-do list next to me right now of the things I wanted to get accomplished today, and I got most of them done, and the rest will carry over to tomorrow. And I, I list and rank everything. I did a ranking on my blog of my the 40 best pizzerias I've ever been to because um, food is another one of my passions. I just love to rank stuff, to put stuff in order. And it's definitely a personality type or, or a mental illness of some sort where I just like, I have to have things in their buckets and I know where they belong. And I like seeing other people's lists. Not that, I mean, there's satisfaction to myself in saying, yes, I finished this list, but also like if the list has any credibility to me at all, it's, Hey, you know what? Somebody else who knows this stuff, whether it's food or it's books or it's games, whatever has said, these things are worth my time. Okay. Well, I'll start working through the list. And there's been some lists where I've started working through and said, this list isn't very good. I'm not going to finish it. But a list like the Hugo winners where I decided to start on that one because um, I'd read maybe there's, – so there's like 66 or 67 of them so, so far. And the ones I'd read, some of them were really good. I said, you know what? Maybe I'm just going to like this. If I keep working my through this, way through this, I get the satisfaction. I have a spreadsheet. I check off. Yes, I've read this and I've read this and I've read this. But also – it's pointing me in the right direction where like among others or to say nothing of the dog, like that book was unbelievable. And then I read that book and had to go read Jerome, Jerome's three men in a boat. So I would understand what I just read. And the Jerome, Jerome book was on another list that I was supposed to be reading too. So there's definitely like a little web of great books that just, they keep sort of playing back on top of each other. And the more I look at, more, the more I find more of these lists, the more I realize we're still talking about the same small group of books with the occasional idiosyncratic entries. There's a lot of books or just authors who appear on every list too. So the more I dive into these lists, the more I find, oh, I want that. I want to read that. Oh, I've read three of that guy's books, but I haven't read this one. So maybe I'll check that out too. So as we started, I mentioned a minute ago that there are a lot of uh, science fiction and fantasy awards. I mean, I'm always curious about what would have, what attracts people to the Hugos? I mean, is it just one that you had heard of that seemed to be mm -hmm. sort of the cream of the crop and that's why you went with that list? I knew the Hugo and the Nebula probably most. And I had, the Hugo was probably the first one I'd ever heard of because I discovered the foundation novels when I was in high school. So that's 25 plus years ago. And I remember it was a Walden Books in Smith Haven Mall on Long Island where I grew up. And I knew who Asimov was because I'd learned um, – I'd actually taught myself algebra from a book long out of print that he'd written that was just still the most uh, elegant explanation of algebra I've ever come across. And um, and so I knew I'd read other stuff of his because he did stuff aimed at younger audiences. And I was just, just kind of cruising the bookstore and saw Foundation and looked at the back. I said, this sounds awesome and then ended up reading the entire series before I was 21 um, or what there was at the at the time. And um, I think that had won some sort of – I think he'd won a Hugo Award, but it stuck with me that that was this – this was an award worth paying attention to. And then um, 
I mean, I'm familiar with the Nebula and the Locus and the Clark Awards, but I looked at the list specifically, the Hugo winners and the Nebula winners, and said the Hugo winners lined up a little more with my personal tastes because I, I want to like books. I'm not going to go through a list where it's just excruciating. Every list will have a couple of bad titles, like Red Mars won the Nebula, I think, not the Hugo. That's a bad book. I'm sure I've just irritated a huge portion of your audience, but I'm with you, man. That Kim book was painful. Kim Stanley Robinson is, in my opinion, one of the most polarizing science fiction authors. He is, I find him dreadful, but some people love him. It's didactic. I did not want a, what was essentially a book on how to colonize Mars. I want a story. I want characters I can remember. I want plot and I want, um, it doesn't have to be beautiful prose. Maybe elegant prose would be a little bit. It was none of those things. And then I looked and I said, wait a minute. I'm supposed to read the next two if I want to finish the list of Hugos? Let's put those at the back of the queue. You know, Maybe I'll get to those in a couple of years when I've read absolutely everything else on the list. And then I'll decide whether I want to do that. And he's an automatic. If he wrote a book this year, he's on the list. So he, of course. he's got a book out this year called Aurora. I, I'm, I'm very confident he'll be nominated. It's just, he's, oh, he's catnip, man. He's catnip for the, for the Hugo voter. Well, do you find who, you probably know the awards better than I do, but I looked, um, like Pulitzer, no one I think has ever won more than twice. And even some of the two time winners, like Updike winning for Rabbit is Rich and then again for Rabbit at Rest, which is actually the book I'm reading right now was controversial, remains controversial 25 years later. Um, but you look at the Hugo winners, you've got a bunch of four-time winners just in the novel category, and there are people who've won six to nine of these awards across different categories. Like The, the universe of science fiction is not that small. So do you think they're just going for the say, hey, Connie Willis wrote something. She's an automatic. She gets a nomination. Well, first of all, I was nominated for a Hugo once, which should tell you everything you need to know. But... Uh, <laughs> I'm honored to talk to you. Well, hey, you know, it was, it was definitely on down, down the ballot. But um, yeah, so there are certain writers. I mean, Lois McMaster Bujold is a classic. Yep. I mean, she's just beloved. But the way the Hugos are voted for is it's a uh, they're nominated by the attendees of WorldCon, which is the mm -hmm. World Science Fiction Convention. And so it's a it's a usually a pool of around twelve hundred to twenty five hundred people who nominate. And then the voting pool is, is much larger than the nominating pool, uh, just sort of by the nature of kind of like primary voters versus general sure. election voters, right? So the nominating pool is relatively small. It's relatively insular. And it's gotten – it used to be more, so it's less so now. Um, but uh, but there are certain writers that are just very popular within that community who get nominated frequently. That doesn't mean they always win. The ones who right. frequently win are both – immensely popular within that organization and actually generally very good. Um, gotcha. You know, so if you look back, Connie Willis is a great example. I mean, she's beloved. She's also very good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so it makes it kind of uh, easy for her to, to, to do very well. Lois McMaster Bujold is, um, her, her books are of a type, you know, particularly her science fiction, yeah. you know, huge following with her, uh, Miles Vorksogian Vors novels. And then, uh, you know, Heinlein, you know, cause back, I think you made an observation on your blog that like back in the days, the field was not quite as diverse as it is today. So right. the notion of Heinlein winning as many times as he did, you know, what was he competing against? Maybe he was competing against, he was competing against a lot of pulp. Yeah. Uh, it was all, it was all white guys, mostly writing stuff that was going into magazines or direct to the mass market. Right. He was one of the few who was trying, I think, although I think he denied it really, but he was trying to write more intelligent, more erudite stuff in a genre that really had very little of it other than him, Asimov, maybe two or three other guys until he got to the 70s. 
it well, seems like there right. wasn't much more of that. And in the seventies, there's really, I mean, if you look back, there was, I mean, J- James Tiptree was writing back then, who's actually a woman, um, oh. uh, but writing as a, as a man. And, mm-hmm. um, and there were some other, I can't ones. imagine why, right. Still happens today, in fact, but there I were, uh, there were some other, uh, other women writing back then as well. But then right the seventies, you know, Ursula Le Guin and Joanna Russ yes. and this huge sort of feminist revolution, if you will, within science fiction happened in the seventies. That was the book. The Dispossessed was the book that tipped me into saying, I'm going to take a look at the list of Hugo winners too, because that's another one. That's, yes, it's clearly science fiction. The sci fi is even more integrated into that than in, like, um, among others, where the sci fi or the fantasy element is very limited. I mean, The Dispossessed is it's set on other planets. She's using her Ansible. She's got sci fi elements, but that's just a great story. It's like a real, and it's philosophical in a way that. A lot of traditional sort of non-genre fiction fails to be, maybe often should be, and isn't. And I read that, and I said, well, first of all, I'm going to read other stuff by her because she's really great. But also, let me take a look at the other Hugo winners. And then, like I said, I sort of looked at the Hugo list and the Nebulous and said, well, I'm going to pick one and ended up on the Hugos because I thought it lined up more with my personal taste. And then so then I think she won also for the Left Hand of Darkness, which which was interesting to me because I really read, read very little fiction at any point that touches on transgender issues. And that was at a time when transgender issues were just not discussed at all. What was that? 73 or so. Um, and to find that that book still really holds up today when we think very differently about people who are transgender, uh, I thought was totally fascinating. I want to touch on the notion that you said that uh, what science fiction or fantasy or genre fiction does that literary fiction kind of fails to do sometimes. And, mm-hmm. and- I have my own thoughts about it, but I mean, what do you feel like, what, what, what are we allowed to get away with in science fiction that you don't see authors as, as allowed to get away with in literary fiction? Well, so I, I come down on the side of, um, there's two basic kinds of science fiction. There's science fiction that gets obsessed with the science. Um, and it doesn't have to be hard science fiction. It's just, there are some authors, um, you know, Red Mars is hard science fiction, but it's one where the author was so obsessed with telling you about the setting Hey, I, I made up this cool story where they go colonize Mars. That you forgot to actually tell a story, create good characters, give us compelling prose. Because that's what I want in any book, genre or otherwise. If it's fiction, I want prose, people, plot. That's how I judge every book that I read ultimately because I'm not going to enjoy it if it doesn't have at least a couple of those things working. And the other side of science fiction is the one where the science is just the backdrop, the sci-fi elements. Or it could be fantasy too. I prefer sci-fi to fantasy, but I'm open. And where that stuff just becomes the backdrop, and then you're still telling a great story. And what good science fiction or fantasy can do is take us out of the limitations of books set in a specific time period where it's sort of like we know these things were true or we know these things were not possible. The idea of um, – I'll go back to the Ansible again in um, Le Guin's books, this idea of interstellar communicate simple almost instantaneous interstellar communication. So to be able to communicate with other other worlds, other races, you can make that very metaphorical for our life today on this planet, um, but do it in a way where you're telling a story that's completely different from a story that is earthbound, for lack of a better term. I think it just opens up more possibilities for the author who wants to tell a bigger or just a different story. And it often frustrates me when I read a sci-fi author who doesn't do that and, again, is just too busy telling me, like, look at all these cool toys I invented. Like, Werner Vinge's um, Rainbow's End. That's actually a good story, not a great story, but, God, there was so much about the wearable technology, which I'm sure people look back and say, hey, that was great. Look at 
Look at how look at that foresight. Look at envisioned the type of stuff that's getting invented today. It's great, but it took away from the rest of the book for me. Right. Uh, yeah, I often find it it allows us to sort of take off the baggage, right? Like all the baggage that we carry with us from real world experiences. We can actually talk about that stuff without getting caught up in our own sort of biases. God knows we have enough of them. Ta- a tangent from that is um, Kazuo Ishiguro uh, mm-hmm. last year wrote The Buried Giant. And when yeah, that's that, great. I haven't read it, but when it came out, he, it. he had a quote that said that he was concerned that the surface elements of the book, which included um, a sleeping dragon, right? It was about a sleeping dragon, uh, might turn the his literary fans off because they would mistake it for fantasy. Right. And I feel like this is sort of the same thing that Margaret Atwood is sort of worried about for years, right? Like the ghettoization of genre fiction. Like, what do you think about those whole distinctions? I mean, are they totally artificial? I think it helps if uh, – I think the distinctions are real. I think there are a lot of people – well, you go to the bookstore, right? Any bookstore. Sci-fi is in its ghetto. It's in its own little – like we don't want to put this stuff too close to the to the literary fiction, almost implying that this can't be literature, which I do have a problem with because there are brilliant people and brilliant writers writing genre fiction. I think that was true of detective fiction. 60, 70, 80 years ago, and it's only with time that people have come back around to the idea that Chandler and Hammett and Keane were contributing real literature. They were actually contributing something to the American canon, but at the time, they were seen as pulp writers, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that 20, 30, 40 years from now, people will look back at a lot of genre fiction and say, no, that's just great fiction. Let's not ghettoize it and just characterize it strictly as, as, um, as genre fiction. Ishiguro's case... I loved seeing a guy like that who I think is one of the great prose masters working today to come back, to come over to genre fiction and to do it in that beautiful way where it's, yes, the setting is different. It's a little bit fantasy, but it's just a great story. He just changed the setting a little bit and used tiny elements of what you'd say was sort of magic of Unreal to tell us a, a very different story but still tell it beautifully like he always tells it beautifully like never let me go had this tiny element of science fiction in it that's almost reality right now but still at the end of the day he's just telling a great story i do love that he backed it up uh backed up that comment this year when he made a comment uh that he actually thought the whole notion that genre fiction isn't considered high literature is absurd so it wasn't like he really it wasn't so much that he believed it he was just more like i hope people don't miss my book because they have this feeling so right that was nice to hear because i think margaret atwood has always kind of really shunned uh the fact that she does write science fiction right um so it was nice to see somebody of his stature say no no like i'm definitely writing in the genre the handmaid's tale is a dystopian novel it seems very real um because it's not set far from the present day and because the political forces she was talking about, what, almost 30 years ago, are still very active in American politics. So it doesn't seem dystopian like 1984 does, but it's very much what it is. I mean, if you were, if you want to start getting into subgenres, that's absolutely what that book is. Um, but it would probably impact her sales, her critical reviews, um, her popularity if she were, uh, just pigeonholed like that into right. oh you're just doing this little this little dystopian fiction as a genre it is but we don't it doesn't have its own section in the bookstore it doesn't have its own uh, magazines public periodicals just devoted to that so she avoids a little bit of that ghettoization it would be grossly unfair we would all lose out if we did that if we took authors like her highly literate highly intelligent and a beautiful writer and just sort of shunted her off to the side 
Did you read Emily Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven from last year, two years ago? Last week, I read it. Yeah, what'd you think? Literally, uh, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. That's another one where um, the setting is largely secondary to just the telling of a great story. She created many compelling characters, I thought. That was really the strength. The, the plot is fine. I'm not even it's sure it has a plot, to be honest though. with you. No, not <laughs> much yeah. of one. It's a journey book, yeah. and you're not really you – know, you get to the end, and you haven't really gotten anywhere in terms of the story, but the characters have developed, and she created a number of them. It's it's one of those books I could absolutely see that becoming a TV series, and I don't want to see it become a TV series because I worry it would be done poorly. But it is crafted like that. She's really created this universe of characters. I'm afraid if they make it a TV series, it'll become like a Walking Dead thing where like let's emphasize how horrible this post-apocalyptic world is, and I don't want to watch that at all. Well, I I mean one of the beauties of that book and a lot of genre, not a lot of fiction in general, is what's one of its highest best qualities is the structure that she yep. employs in the novel, which would be totally lost if you brought it to the screen. I mean, the whole structure would fall apart. Oh, and, all the flashbacks. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the, the yep. lack of linearity and that kind of stuff. Yep. And I'm fine with that. I think that works in, I mean, hell I read hopscotch, which is the, the least linear book ever. Maybe other, well, infinite jest might qualify too, where infinite jest is not so much linear as it is a, it's a flat circle. Um, if you can survive those books, you can handle a nonlinear narrative like station. 11. Right. And there's Mark Martin Amos's Times Arrow. Have you ever seen that one where he wrote it in reverse? Oh, did he really? So oh, it's, it's start- I've only read Money, so I yeah. don't know that one. It starts with the guy's death and ends with his birth. It's sort of like Benjamin Button, except it all actually happens in reverse. <laughs> right. So there's like a going to the bathroom scene. I mean, it's all very bizarre. But That's weird. Yeah. Literary literary writers challenging themselves, I guess. Yep. Uh, so as I read some of your the reviews that you wrote about the Hugo winners, um, and several of them you sort of use terms like thin plots, you know, wooden characters. And I don't know that they're ubiquitous criticisms, but they do seem to pop up perhaps slightly more often in those reviews than you do in some of your other, you know, when you're kind of doing the top 100. I mean, do you think that science fiction suffers from those faults more often, sort of falling back on, hey, it's the fiction of ideas, not necessarily the fiction of plot character? Well, yes, um, I think it does because of the reason I mentioned it can, I should say. Because the reason I mentioned earlier where the science becomes sort of this fourth fourth aspect to it where it's this, this – whether I'm saying science, the science, the, the fantasy, whatever, that the setting becomes too much of a part of it. And then I find that um, extremely frustrating as a reader. I would have loved that when I was 13. I'm not 13 anymore. I'm not impressed by a story about interstellar travel. I want plot, prose, people, characters. Um there is also a little selection bias at work, though, because if you look at my non-genre reading, it tends to be the very best of non-genre fiction. I read, I went through a huge run of reading all the classics. I mean, I think I've hit the classics of English and American literature. I've read most of them by now. Um, if I haven't read anything, it's probably because I just don't want to. So I was really skimming off the top, and skimming off the top of two centuries or more of of literature is not the same as skimming off the top of sci-fi. Um, that said, I read uh, The Vore recently, V-O-R-H by B, I think it's Brian Catling. Now, that wasn't an award. But I mean, my wife just bought it for me. She just found it, thought it looked interesting. That's another one where, um, no, it's not an award winner, but uh, the setting is very modest. The setting informs everything, 
but he really does not spend much time explaining it at all. It is all plot and character driven and it's amazing and it's immersive and like to me, well, it probably should have won awards. Like that's what good science fiction slash fantasy I hate they, they shouldn't even be lumped together, but they are. That's what they can do though. He created this setting that's only like it's like if you're turning the dial, it's like ten degrees off from reality. But it allowed him to do so much more with the plot and with the characters than he could have done if he was writing an ultra-realistic book. Let's take a few minutes here. I just want to dive into some of the things you've read recently. Okay. You just finished The Three-Body Problem. Yep. So I read The Three-Body Problem and really, really liked it. It has some mm-hmm. challenges, though. Yes. But uh, but I found the first beginning of it, like the, the, uh, the Cultural Revolution sort of novella <laughs> that sets up the whole book. Yep. But I love that. That, oh, it's great. The novella section, I wish you could just take out and put on its own. It's so good. Yes, it's fantastic. Well, and I think to us as Western readers, too, it's particularly novel, no pun intended, because we ha- we know so little about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even if you'd studied it in school, more about that period is becoming public now. And so he's writing with a perspective that no Western author is going to bring. Right. No, I, I agree. With, I actually studied uh, – Chinese in school, and I, I was oh, nice. st- I was still totally uh, blown away by it. Mm-hmm. it. Totally came out of nowhere for me. Um, but yeah, the the book itself is uh, is very mind expanding and really cool. But uh, boy, it, it tends to drag there in the middle a, a fair <laughs> bit. I think it's yes. a fair accusation. What do you think? He pulled the Neil Stevenson trick where all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm going to have ten pages of explanation now. So it's not suffused. The entire book is not suffused with sciencey explanations, but it's like. I'm I'm in a lecture. I'm sitting in a lecture hall and I'm getting a long lecture on something. Now some of it was interesting. Like I find I'm I'm a math guy. So explanations of the three body problem are really interesting to me. And it led me to go online then and read more about the three body problem. That stuff was fine. The part about the unfolding of the proton, which I know he he made up, but still like that was so um excruciatingly detailed more than we really ever needed and probably a translator's nightmare too i'm sure <laughs> that that part was you know let's get to the point a little sooner here and i felt like he got wrapped up a little bit no pun intended in his own invention there um which was clever to be sure but i didn't need that much detail on it i needed to know about what they what what are they doing with the protons and where are they going and i, I don't want to spoil anything but that becomes it is really significant and it got dry at a point where the tension really should have been ratcheted up. Yeah, one of the I had a hard time criticizing the book to some degree because I we're not I don't really understand or know anything about Chinese literary tradition. Sure. And so while Me neither. The, while the book is deeply informed I think by exported American science fiction, Arthur C. Clarke and that you know that whole generation of writers that were ex- heavily exported um, across the world, uh, in some ways it's also totally informed by their own cultural narrative mm-hmm. traditions which I have a hard time sort of saying like uh, it didn't work, right? I don't know if it didn't work. It didn't totally work for me. It may have worked exactly the way he intended it. Uh, so right. it's, it's it's a tricky one to, to criticize. But I was surprised that it won a Hugo uh, because of that sort of discomfort that I think it creates. Mm-hmm. It rather speaks highly of the Hugo that did win, though, in my opinion. And that's so. what I think. That was my immediate reaction was, wow, they really went outside the box for an award that I have, like I, I said earlier, they tend to go back to their favorite authors a little too frequently. To go completely out of the box, an unheard of author. I mean, I know he's huge in China and he's won a bunch of awards there. His stuff is not known here at all. I'd never heard of him 
before I saw that he won the Hugo and then looked and said, oh, wow, this book has gotten amazing reviews. I should have heard of it sooner. And then to, to, to see that the Hugos went out like that, um, went completely out of their history, their traditions, the literary style that they tend to go for, for a book that um, you have to get pretty far into it before you get into any sci-fi mm-hmm. elements. Really, I mean, the beginning, I was like, "Am I really reading a sci-fi book?" Then you get into it. It's, oh yes, clearly I am, obviously. But yeah, that's that was a book you kind of had to hang with a little bit. It was enjoyable from the start for me, but to get to the sci-fi aspects of it, so yeah, I was very impressed. And I think it says a lot for an award that's gotten a ton of criticism for its insularity. Um, it makes me hopeful that they'll be open to more writers, different writers, writers from, from different backgrounds different countries, different ethnicities, whereas in the past it's been um, largely a white person's award. They've done – we've gotten a few women who've won, but not a lot of diversity on that front either. It's been largely a white man's award, and to see them go like this I think is is definitely a positive step. President Obama read Three Body Problem. I did not see that. Yeah, but yeah, that was, does not surprise me. It was on like his uh, Camp David reading list, so he took it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty neat. Yeah, it was. I couldn't put it down. I read it in two days on a trip, a scouting trip, and uh, it, I just carried it everywhere. And if I had a few minutes, I wanted to pick it back up. Even in the dry parts, I still wanted to go because I'm like, this isn't going to last that long, and I'm going to get back to the story. Right. Uh, so to juxtapose that with like the total opposite book, which is Red Shirts by John Scalzi, <laughs> uh, which I which you liked tremendously, frustrated me in many ways. I think, but uh, probably because I wanted it to be something it was not. But it's it's a lot of fun. Tremendous. And I read the I find, again, another book where the prologue, I heard him read the prologue at a convention maybe a year or two before it was published. And I mean, he had the whole, the prologue had me in stitches. Like, I thought it was just so clever. Um, and it just got sort of more clever from there. In my opinion, maybe a little too clever, but you really liked it. Loved it. Loved it. I mean, one that he managed to turn that idea into an actual functioning story with a beginning, middle, and end is incredibly impressive because metafiction often falls very short on that front. I got this great idea, can't actually make a full story out of it. Um, and also, I think within that, there were a lot of meditations on um, the, sort of more of those philosophical elements, mm-hmm. meditations on uh, meaning of life. If you wanted to, I don't think that, I don't think he intended a religious meaning to it. But people who want people who believe that there is a creator and we have a purpose here, I mean, he's playing with that, and he's playing with it not entirely reverently either, which I think is good. Um, I think the layers that he was going through there, the idea of uh, um, it seems critical of the idea that some people are just more disposable than others because that's how they're treated in fiction in general. And he took that idea and put it into practice, essentially. There are things in there that could be very uncomfortable if you start to think about them. And to do that in a book that is still really funny, um, one of the funniest novels I think I've ever read, uh, was just, to me, an, a real achievement to do all of that and still make it a story that works to the end. And actually ended, I thought, quite beautifully, the, the multiple epilogues. Um, the codexes? Pack, yeah, it was very clever, too, because – he probably knew you'd want more, and he knew you, you'd want a couple of different angles on it, and managed to do that without dragging it out, too. That's another book which I've loaned to friends, recommended to readers a lot. It's like, you know what? If you hate it, which I can't imagine, but if you hate it, it's quick. 
there's no way anyone's going to say, oh, that book took me forever to read. It's yeah. fast. I think it's only the book itself. The main story is only about 50,000 words, I think. I believe it. And then, yeah. the, then the codexes, I think, get it to about 65 or 70. And, and yeah, yeah. In, a, in a hardback novel, that's a tiny book. Oh, yeah. It's nothing. It is. It's. I mean, it's something you could knock off on a flight mm -hmm. and probably still have time. Like you're going across the country, you'll have time to read something else, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's kind of the book that, I mean, he was already a very successful guy, but it's definitely the book that uh, I think catapulted him to another level. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I don't know, he just signed a 10 book million dollar deal. Oh my! With, uh, with Tor, yeah. So he's uh, good for him. He's doing he's doing well. Yeah, that's in development <laughs> for television, right? With FX. So I saw that. I don't I know that. how you make a Star Trek satire about getting sued? about <laughs> a television satire, right? <laughs> like on TV, it's so meta that yes. it's right. Yeah, you might have to wait till the copyright expires. Yeah, you'll call it the shinning. Yeah. Quiet boy, you want to get sued? And then I and I can't. Uh, you also loved Hyperion, which is one of my favorite books ever. Oh my god, that was amazing. Well, that's another one that, and that was very. That's very sciency in 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 terms of um, the integration of the setting with the story. I mean, you're, there's no getting away from it. What this strike ultimately is, but God, did he tell amazing stories to me? It's like the Cloud Atlas of science fiction. I think it actually mm -hmm. came first, but to tell that many stories in that many genres. Sort of, um, styles and have it all work and got in that last segment too. I just couldn't, couldn't put it down. And you put it all into a bow at the end. That's what's amazing about it. It actually all yes. ties together. Yep. Absolutely. The only thing, and I know that the next book sort of finishes off some of those stories. You wanted more, but that's pretty common in science fiction. Science fiction, you, you might expect a sequel. That's the, one of the great differentiators between genre fiction and any other fiction. Like nobody read a Charles Dickens novel and thought, all right, I'm waiting for, tale of three cities right so i but i you know i've learned to live with that that it might not be complete at the end of a science fiction book and then by the same token i'll jump into i read paladin of souls without reading reading without whatever the book was that came before because if you're reading the hugo winners like i'm not going to go back and read the first book in every series or read all the books in every series like you just sort of get used to jumping in and out of stories a little more whereas in classic literature that's not a factor right I mean, hey, if you're willing to accept that magic is real, you can accept that they got to the place in the story where they're at. With exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, once, they, once you open that door, you just suspend all disbelief. I've never really had a problem doing that in literature. I'm not the one who reads sci-fi or fantasy and thought, well, that's unrealistic. Like, really? That's the thing that bothers you? Not the 50 other things that came before that are totally unrealistic? Like, some of this stuff is just going to break physics. It's fine. It's all in the service of telling a story. That's right. Uh, interestingly, like all these books that I've kind of brought up have like they're all doing very weird things. Like none of, none of them are straight linear narrative right. type stories, which um, probably speaks to both of our tastes in some degree. But one you didn't like that I that I loved was Ancillary Justice. Mm -hmm. I just I was kind of lukewarm on it. The story never really I read it fast. It flew absolutely flew. But at no point did the story really kind of grab me. And I think part of it was that her protagonist is not a person. And so therefore there was no connection at all between me and the protagonist. Like typically a story like that where the, the you know, the per, the protagonist is the hero of the, of the story. There's some connection. You're rooting for that character. You're following. You're, you're interested. It just, it read dispassionately, and maybe it's cliche to say so, but it was sort of like it was like a book about a you know a, 
uh, an android about a cyborg right. like where there's nothing i it read like that to me i mean i'm sure i understand why it won it just didn't do it for me yeah a lot of people describe it as being cold and that's what they don't like mm-hmm. about it it's yeah it's one of those books that i think caught the right moment in when it came out because i think a lot of people who read it really latched onto it because of that lack of personhood mm-hmm. because of how we assign personhood within our own culture Sure. And people who feel sort of outside of those parameters, I think, really latched on to Breck and said, this is somebody finding their way and their and their personhood in a way that I am, too, or that I might be also seeking that out. And I think that's why that book spoke to a lot of people and why it caught because when it came out, it was it's almost like a zeitgeist. I mean, nobody thought that book was going to do what it did. And it sold like right. gangbusters, um, which I think, I think is awesome. Yeah, it's just one of those times, one of those sometimes. A book's success is so much about when it comes out and that it's speaking to a, a cultural need in that moment mm-hmm. that uh, that calls out to people. So I think that's the case with that book. I think it's a well-written book, a well-put-together book, but I think it, a lot of its success had to do with the moment that people read it in. That so, makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. It also would make sense why it wouldn't resonate so much with me because like, I've got lots of friends who've had questions about their gender, about their sexual orientation, about lots of things about their personality. Um that I've just never had to go through. And it's just, so it's different. So I'm going to read literature different from a person who's transgender, a person who's gay, a person who's just, who's just grown up differently than I have. So it didn't have any of those sort of finding your identity, what the finding your identity issues that were clearly in that book just weren't going to hit me. Right. Yeah. The, uh, the white guy privilege is a, uh, is is a, is a definitely a different perspective. And I, I I bring it to everything I read. I can't help it. What I used to be totally fine with, uh, this isn't a perspective aside. I used to be totally fine with violence against children in books. Never bothered me. Now, oh man, unacceptable. <laughs> I can't handle it. Totally unacceptable. <laughs> it just well, gets... my my issue with Game of Thrones is like that's a rapey book. Oh yeah, not not okay with it. Well, look, if if someone else is, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, but I am absolutely not okay with a book that has that much rape and appears to um, condone it, if not even play it up. Yeah, you know, I, so I read the series, the the the, the books. Mm-hmm. I started when I was pretty young, you know, maybe I think seventeen or eighteen, right before okay. I went to college, and read them uh, as they came out. After that, mm-hmm. and really loved them. And um, when the most recent one came out, A Dance with the Dragons, I went back and read them again, and I, I think I had moved on. Yeah, and and then the series came on the television series, and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I got settled into my couch, like I'm going to watch this thing. Two episodes in, I was like, nope. I'm out. <laughs> like, like too much rape. Don't need this much violence in my life. Um, you know, like just having this on in my house while my children are asleep makes me uncomfortable, much yeah. less like having them in the room when it's on. Yep. So I was just, I had to nope out of that. I'm totally with you. And look, it, again, I don't judge readers. Like if you, I've got lots of readers who love Game of Thrones, the series, they love the books. I read the first book and I was done. Um, I'm not going to tell you not to read. I'm not going to judge you. But it's very much not for me. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll try to wrap up here pretty quick. I have, mm-hmm. one, I have one more question I want to kind of talk about, kind of circling around back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this off air a little bit, but you started with Baseball Prospectus back 10 96. years ago? Okay, so yeah, tw- almost 20, 20 years, years ago. ago. It'd 20 be 20 years, years. yeah. And then you went to work for the Blue Jays in 2002. Yep. How old were you when you started at Baseball Prospectus? I uh, would have been 23. Yeah. Okay. So pretty much right out of college, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was 94 grad. So I've yeah. been, yeah. Uh, after business school, you went to business school, right? I went to business school after that. So I was writing okay. for BP okay. 
and then freelancing a little bit for ESPN through business school at Carnegie Mellon. Um, graduated from there in 99, worked some tech jobs, very unset, unfulfilling day jobs, writing baseball stuff on the side. Yeah, so that's kind of what I wanted to get at was baseball started as, as something you wanted to do, but mm-hmm. it was also sort of a hobby, something that you maybe never imagined could be a real career. Not at all. And then it became a real career. And now you do baseball for a living, which for the average person is a total dream job. <laughs> In much the same way that like uh, fans of science fiction and fantasy would imagine that being an author is a dream mm-hmm. job, like being a novelist is a dream job. But they, they're only dream jobs until you have them. <laughs> right. A, dr- a dream job is to have so much money that you don't have to work. Right. And so That's now, a dream job. And so now you work in baseball, which all these people out there are, are looking at this great job. But but you now have other hobbies, like you're into cooking and, and books, as we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes, and board games and all kinds of other things that you blog about. You keep a blog where you just throw words away that aren't part <laughs> of your baseball world. Uh, I imagine you take some abuse from people who read you on ESPN and are like, why are you wasting your time with this crap? Write more about, you know, the angels top, top 20. Um, but like, how, did, how what's it been like for you to transition from something that you thought was a hobby is now a career. And now you dabble in these other hobbies. Like there just has to be weird for you a little bit. Um, I've always been very diligent about maintaining separation between, uh, I have a work life. And ESPN pays me. They pay me well. And so they have claim on um, my output. But they do not have a claim on my time. Like, there's no, you're not working enough hours. I wouldn't, no one's ever said that to me. And I wouldn't tolerate it. Are you getting the output that you require? Yes. Okay, great. Then the rest of my time is mine. And a lot of that time actually goes to my family, um, especially when I'm not traveling. I try to dedicate, uh, you know, I travel, my travel often involves weekends because I'm going to see college players who tend to play on the weekends. I try to be home every Sunday and make sure that Sunday is a family day, that I'm not on the computer, the phone's off, um, or at least as, as uninvolved as possible. And I also try to carve out time for myself to read, to cook. Cooking is for the family, to eat out. Uh, my daughter is actually my partner in crime on a lot of stuff. She's only nine, but she's a really good eater. She's a good trier. And so I can take her to fancy restaurants and she's good. You know, we order maybe one extra thing somewhere and she'll find something to eat. She's, she's good at that. And, and she always asks, are you going to write about this on your blog? <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, I am. Absolutely. Um, so I'm very serious about, I, I need me time. I need family time and I need personal time to pursue these other interests because like you said, baseball is now a job. It's a good job. It's one I don't complain about because nobody wants to hear it, but also, um, baseball is no longer a hobby. The joy of baseball, it's not gone, but it's very, very different now that it is tied to the way that I make my living. And, um, I'll never not like baseball. That's unthinkable. But at the same time, I need to make sure a significant portion of my week is dedicated to not baseball. And that can be any of these other things in any proportion. It just has to be not baseball. Um, and, I've gotten better and better at that, and I've also gotten better bosses too. The people I work under at ESPN are really good about understanding that I need that separation, and that it keeps me productive too. So they're getting everything they want out of me, and that there are times when I'll just say, "Don't call me. I'm I'm done for the night. I'm out for the night. I'm taking my daughter out. We're going on a date, a dad daughter date, and you just leave us alone." And that 
I'm going to write. Like they said, okay, I write the board game reviews for Paste Magazine. I checked with ESPN. They said, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Basically, if it's not baseball related, if it's not sports related, pretty much write stuff for almost anybody. There's, there's limits, obviously, but you know, they're very reasonable about that because they understand too that letting me do stuff like that keeps me happy and keeps me more productive. So I'm very fortunate to be in that situation. Um, and I'm also, I think I'm fortunate in that I've learned what I have to do to keep myself happy and it's, been therapy and it's been help from my wife and help from friends to just sort of understand like I'm 42 now. It took me a long time to get to this point to figure out what I need to do to live kind of a, a happy and fulfilled work life that doesn't take over my entire life. Um, and the, the books are, I, I often say it's my meditation. I do meditate a little bit. I should do it more, but the books are very meditative for me because when the book is good, I can get lost in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just out of curiosity among your ESPN colleagues and mm-hmm. athletes that you interact with, like how many of them have you shared like things you've read with in the actual sports community? Um, it They come to me, right? Because they see that I blogged about something and they'll be like, oh, I love that book. Or, oh, you like that. Have you read this one? So that comes up all the time. And it's really funny, like a bunch of scouts um, – I mean, I'm friends with a lot of the scouts who are just my sources, but you know, you end up, I talk to them a lot. We hang out at games and stuff. We're friends. And like, I know like there's one scout. He's my top chef buddy. We love top chef. He's a foodie too, but we particularly like top chef and we talk about that all the time. And there are others who are books guys. There's a guy, I shouldn't even say the club, but like we are old school hip hop fans. And I told him I'm going to see Rakim in a concert this summer. He's doing paid in full. He's supposed to do the record the complete album which can be interesting because there's a lot of tracks that are just just eric b so i don't know how that works yeah but like i texted him right away i was like, oh my god i got tickets to this thing and he's like oh you i can't believe you got that like everyone's got another interest most people don't have as many other interests as i do but i can usually find you send me into a room of people of strangers i can probably find something to talk to about most of the people in that room and i like that and I like that within baseball, we I have lots of friends I can talk to about not baseball stuff because otherwise we have the same conversation all the time. Hey, who would you see lately? Oh, where are you going? Oh, did you see this guy? Did you see that guy? And then you realize you get to Friday and you realize I just had the same conversation 20 times. Now it's not like that. Now yeah. that my interests are out there for everyone to see, people feel like they can tell me, oh, yeah, I love – oh, yeah, Ticket to Ride. I love that game. I play it with my kids. I had a GM text me in December to ask me to say my kids like this game and this game. What would another game be good for me to buy for them for Christmas? I was like, that is fantastic. And like, I know, I mean, I was totally happy to help, but it also sort of felt good. Like, hey, this guy knows that I follow this stuff, that I'm interested in it, and now I can help him. Hey, and ESPN, you just strengthened a source right there with your uh, <laughs> with your it board really, games, right? It's so funny because you know what? It's just one of those like, I'm sure at some point I would ask. I mean, I you know, it's not a quid pro quo. But I'll ask him a question. He'll probably remember, hey, Keith told me to get this board game for my kids. Okay. No. It's all about relationships, man. That's what it's all about. Yeah, and it really is. It's never quid pro quo. It's just about, you know, my, we've, you know, we've got trust. My whole philosophy is just be be kind to people, be nice to people, you know, and good things will happen. Yeah. Lots of good things have come to me just because I was nice. And so there's really it's it is so much work to be a jerk to people. I'd rather just be nice. That's and then, right. you know, people like you and Maybe good things will happen and maybe they won't. You know, it doesn't have to be, you don't be nice for a reward, but it is nice when the rewards show up. Right. That's right. All right, man. So my, uh, my baseball friends would not forgive me <laughs> if I didn't get one, like some kind of prospect related question out of you. So 
who is in this year's list who surprised you the most? Oh, that's a good question. Who kept moving? I'm trying to think of who really kept moving up on the list. Um, I'm like mentally scanning through my list of who guys kept telling me to move up. I, I mean, I didn't think Albert Almora from the Cubs would even make the list. And a bunch of people put in plugs for him. Like, yeah, he's been a little just because he was Cubs center fielder. He was sixth pick overall. He's been seen as a bit of a disappointment and was surprised how much support came back in for him. Um, Real athlete, right? If I, if But I not a runner. He's got – he's just got the mental – ability to play center field like the reads the routes he's just even when he was 17 18 years old he was really advanced at that and was kind of surprised or so also jorge polanco of the twins who looked at the stats and i've seen the player a little bit and talked to a lot of twins people who talked him up no none of them ever said put him on your top 100 but then put him i put together like a here's my first cut at the 100 and circulate it to some people who see a lot of the minor leagues or office people who know their team scouting reports I was surprised not one person came back and said, get him off the list. Like Everyone thought he belonged. It's like, wow. If you'd asked me a month ago, does Jorge Polanco make your top 100? I would have said, no shot. Are you kidding me? But no, actually, he, he absolutely belonged on the list. He's going to be a good big leaguer and probably better than I realized until I started digging into it, which is why that becomes such a project. It ends up a month plus of calls and watching video and um, – doing some wor- little work on the stats like to try, to try to put everything together. So I don't miss the Jorge Polancos. You know, I was a huge baseball fan for, for my whole life. And I was, been, I was in a fantasy baseball league for 16 straight years. Same guys, super yep. dedicated. We, we carried a 20-player 20, 20 minor league roster. I mean, really, oh, yeah. really intense. Hardcore. Oh, yeah. And uh, about two years ago, I was like, all right, guys, I got to get out. out. I got to get out. Yeah. Like, I got, I got too much other stuff going on. But yep. – uh, <laughs> But I told them all that I was going to have you on, so they were they were very excited. And, oh, cool! Uh, and now you've you've given them a taste. So Albert Almora and uh, Jorge Polanco. There you go. Yep. There you go, guys. <laughs> well, Keith, this was fun. Um, I love talking to to people, smart people that aren't aren't just genre people. So I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, and this has been great. Oh, it's my would pleasure. Love, would love to have you back when you finish the the Hugos, and we can we can rank them. Yeah, maybe by this time next year. All I right. think I've got. Although I may not read the Kim Stanley Robinson books. I'll forgive so you. you. If you'll forgive those two, I think I can get there. All right, we'll talk about it. Uh, This has been Keith Law. 